G'day Dave here and we're looking at Daniel 7 and I know from speaking with some of you that Daniel's a little scary. Uh, maybe you've already been scared looking at chapters 1 to 6, there have been some weird things going on there and some difficult things to understand but certainly when you get to chapter 7 through to 12, what we might call the dream time of Daniel, it can be pretty difficult and maybe that kind of turns you off, maybe it freaks you out and maybe you've never really looked seriously at this and you might be tempted to think that God has put it there just to be difficult. But God doesn't do that. All right? um, we know that from the scriptures and what gets said about scripture itself, uh, let me give you an example. In Romans 15 and verse 4, we're told that everything that God's word says is there so that we might actually have encouragement and endurance uh, and hope. And it's helpful for us to remember that because God has given the book of Daniel to his people to give us encouragement, help with endurance and give us real hope. That was important in Daniel's day, as we know. It's important still today, isn't it? So how about we ask God to help us read this chapter uh, because it's a cracker. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to find endurance and encouragement and real hope as we look at Daniel 7 together now. Amen. Well, you may have heard this type of literature that's in Daniel 7 and in Revelation and Ezekiel and Zechariah and so on, described as apocalyptic. And if you have, that might freak you out all the more because most people think that apocalyptic is a way of speaking about the end of the world or dreadful things that are happening, doomsday kind of stuff. But the word apocalypse literally means the unveiling of a secret. It's the revelation of something that is hidden. And that's why I think it's probably better that we know the last book of the Bible by the name Revelation, rather than simply translating directly from the Greek where it says the Apocalypse of John. Uh, now, it's revelation that we see, and we see it here in Daniel. But how do we go about reading literature that's like this? And I want to suggest three things to you. The first uh, of these is context, the second is picture language, and the third is response. And you might remember these, uh, CPR, context, picture, response. First of all, context, it's always important when we're looking at the scriptures. Uh, if there's something that doesn't make sense in Daniel, well, we've already been told that maybe there'll be an interpretation so that it does make sense. And we'll get that here in this chapter as well. But maybe we don't get told in Daniel. Then what do we do? Well, we look around the rest of the Bible. Do the rest of the scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament, give us an understanding as to what's going on here? Because the reality is God spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament, but they didn't always have a full picture on what they were saying themselves. And you need to get to Jesus to understand it. So that's the first thing, context. The second thing is picture language. Sometimes people get criticized for not taking the Bible literally. Uh, I think I would criticize a lot of people for taking the book of Daniel too literally. That is, there's all this focus on the details, saying this equals that. These events are this thing here. This image is what's going on here in this part of history and so on. And I want to suggest that the plain meaning should be the main meaning. That is, look at what the overall picture is saying, first of all, and don't force pictures and numbers and symbols 
into literal uh, meaning. They're there as a kind of poetry, if you like. Let me give you some examples of this that I think we're familiar with. If you try and do a cryptic crossword the same way you do a quick crossword, you won't get it out. You just will have no chance whatsoever. You've got to realize that there are conventions that are functioning differently. And it's true here. If you needed to translate into a foreign language, uh, it's raining cats and dogs. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean you look up in the sky and you've got fairy creatures that are flying down and hitting you on the head? No, it's not what it means. It's an image. It's a picture. Uh, and if you wanted someone from another country to understand it, you'd probably need to work out what the image in that country was or a way of saying it's really uh, heavy rain, but even heavy. You see, you see the difficulty that we've got sometimes with language. They're images here. If I was to say to you that I expect the sea eagles might even overcome the might of the storm. Does that mean I'm talking about birds here on the coast and there being a powerful nor'easter that's coming in that might impact their nests? No. It means I'm talking about the NRL and I don't really care that much. Or, or if I was to say, I, I think that the green and gold might paint the floor with the all blacks. Um, I'm not talking about colours, am I? You, you might say you're dreaming and I would be. Uh, I'm talking about rugby union. If, if I was to say to you that I got the 334 the other day, what does that mean, the 334? Until you know that it's the, the code for the bus that takes me from Bonnie Hills to Port Macquarie. Or if I was to say, well, look, I've told you that a million times. Is it really a million? Or is it perhaps a thousand? Or have I just said it quite a few times recently? You see, we, we should not push the language beyond how it's intended to be read. And um, there you've got the context, then you've got picture language, uh, and, and numbers are a big part of this picture language. We'll see that more and more. Uh, and you need to go for the plain meaning. The third thing that I'd say is you need to think about the response. That is, when you read it, how does it impact you? Um, is it terrifying? Should you feel scared? Uh, is, it, is it really... Um, uh, does it create security and a sense of confidence? H how does it impact you? Because the Word of God is written for a response. The Word of God is written that we might be transformed. It, it's not there for academic study. It's not so people can get PhDs in the ancient beasts of ancient Near Eastern literature. It's there to encourage and to provide hope as we endure. So what do we uh, make then of this particular chapter? Well, I want to look at it um, in a couple of sections. The first section has to do with these beasts. And we see that there are four of them. Uh, and the four winds of heaven are churning up the great sea. And four great beasts, each different from the others, come up out of the sea. Uh, now, the sea in the ancient world was considered a place of chaos and danger, particularly for the Israelites. And uh, here are four kind of scary creatures coming up out of the sea. They're not amphibians. Uh, it's not talking about crocodiles or things like that. It's picture language, all right? So they're scary and they come out of the scary place. And we see that all kinds of things happen to them. We see that they're violent creatures and that they're bringing about destruction. They're terrifying, they're frightening, they're powerful and they trample underfoot and they devour victims, and each one is different to the others. 
So what do we make of it? Well, first thing we need to think is context. Does the context tell us? And guess what it does. So if you come to chapter uh, 7, verse 17, so he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. That's what they are. They're four kings. Similar, isn't it, to chapter 2. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. You've got this, this kind of statue thing and the head of gold and then silver and then bronze and then other things. And what is the dream about? It's about four kingdoms. And you've got that similar picture here. In fact, here's a, a little insight. The book of Daniel was actually written in two languages. Uh, chapters 2 through to chapter 7 were written in Aramaic. And the similarities between chapter 2 and chapter 7, between chapter 3 and chapter 6, and between chapter 4 and chapter 5, like concentric circles. There's just a little insight. So we should expect to see connections between chapter 2 and chapter 7. All right, away from that little insight. The picture here is of these beastly figures that are four powerful kings that are going to wreak havoc and destruction. They'll be powerful and they will be violent. So what do we make of that? Well, before we unpack the detail of that, the attention shifts to a different scene. And rather than being one of chaos and violence, it's actually very ordered. It's very glorious and it's calm. And so in verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. And a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. And thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Now, number of things to, uh, to observe here as we look at this. Here is a figure who is dazzling in appearance. Uh, he's pure. He's white. Um, and yet he's, he's powerful. This image of, of a flowing river of fire and the wheels that are all ablaze. Um, he's ancient. He's the ancient of days. Here's a figure who's been around from the beginning, from before the beginning, I take it. And notice here, he's surrounded by people. Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands times 10,000. See, it's not a literal number here. It's just he's completely surrounded. And then we see it's a courtroom scene. The court was seated and the books were opened. A bit hard to get uh, 100 million people or whatever we, we have here into a courtroom. It's picture language. You don't paint this. Um, you get the sense of it. Here I take it is a picture of God, the eternal God, the king who is judge over all. And he's ruling on his throne. He's surrounded by all that he has created. And now he's about to rule in judgment. Well, you see, as you read down the overthrow of the beasts, um, and uh, the, the temporary stripping of authority and the allowing of them to live for a little bit of time. But then another scene that includes the Ancient of Days. This one, however, features another figure, the Son of Man. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man. Uh, notice he's different to the beastly figures. They're, they're kind of human-like, but they're beastly. 
This is a human figure, a son of man. And he's coming with the clouds of heaven. Uh, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power and all nations of people of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, wow. Okay, you've got the picture here of, of a human figure rising on the clouds of heaven and approaching the Ancient of Days, going right into his presence and being given authority to rule over all. Wow. Now, background to the clouds. If you were to do a little bit of an investigation uh, to get context here, leading up to this point, you would see clouds mentioned in three key places. Clouds are where God meets with his people. Clouds are where they, the, the presence of God goes before the Israelites in the wilderness. Crowds, clouds, clouds are uh, over the tabernacle where God dwells and then the temple. So the picture here is one of, of the one who rides on the clouds, if you like, is God. But here it's a human being who comes into the presence of God and he's given authority over all. And notice in verse 14, not only is he given authority, this human being is able to rule over all kingdoms forever and ever, but he is also worshipped by all nations and people of every language. Now that's extraordinary. Because the Bible has made it very, very clear. You look at the context and you should only worship God. In fact, the book of Daniel keeps saying, you don't worship anyone other than God. Nebuchadnezzar got into trouble for treating himself as God. Um, you are not to bow down before any other image. There's only one God and you're not to make any images of God and you're not to worship anything that is not God. And here we're told they're worshipping a human being. <laughs> We shouldn't overlook this. This is, wow, what's going on? How can this be? Well, we need to read on if we're going to get the context for that. We need to understand ultimately, in the light of Jesus, what that's all about. Well, there's more interpretation that's going on, particularly interpretation of, uh, of the fourth beast, which is different to the others, and the impact of the fourth beast um, and his horns and claws and teeth have on others. And uh, as you read on, the horn, verse 21, is waging war against the holy people and defeating them um, until the ancient days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. So quickly, uh, context the vision there of this last uh, horn waging war against God's people is to be understood that uh, there'll be a time when God will provide judgment and the horn will be overthrown, but God's people will be vindicated and they will come into possession of the kingdom. Now, the thing to notice here in this interpretive section is there is no mention of the Son of Man. Uh, we've just been told that the Son of Man will rule over all of the kingdoms of the earth and everyone will worship him. And now we're seeing this picture where God's people will actually be persecuted and they'll be opposed until God rules in their favor and they get to rule. How are we to take these things? 
Well, I take it in this picture here, you, you have the Son of Man ruling and the saints or the most holy people. That is another word for God's own people, those who trust in him, those who follow him, ruling. We will rule together with the Son of Man. We will be brought into the throne room and given the right to rule in God's new eternal kingdom. And when you think about it, that's what we were created to do. God created man and woman in his image to rule over the beasts of the field. But here you've got this opposition. Here you've got these beastly figures um, attacking the, the people, the people who belong to God. But God's going to find in their favor. And he's going to hand his judgment um, over so that the beast will be destroyed. And God's people will rule with the Son of Man for all eternity. And you get this wonderful picture there of, uh, of, of people, um, being, of, of the, the power of the beasts being destroyed. And then the sovereignty, verse 27, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the, the holy people of the Most High. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the rulers will worship him and obey him. And then what is the impact of this? Well, look at verse 28. Maybe you feel this way. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled in my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Why do you think? Why was this so troubling to Daniel? Well, it might be because for a time, and we're told here it's for a time, times and half a time, Three and a half times, if you like. It, it, it's a picture of incompleteness, not completeness. Number seven is a picture of completeness. Um, here you've got three and a half, incomplete. A short time, there'll be severe suffering for God's people. But they will be rescued and they will rule. Think about it. For the people in Babylon, what great hope this message is. It's giving them a reminder that... that Belshazzar's not in control. Cyrus won't be in control. And, and, and keep going down through history. The Persians, the Medes, the Greek, the Romans, the US, the, the, the Brits, the French, the Spanish, the Chinese. They won't be in control. There'll be no human empire that will last. But those who put their trust in God will prevail. And they can be part of an eternal kingdom because of the Son of Man. How does this work out? Well, let's jump to the New Testament. And I want to jump to the book of Mark because in Mark's gospel, uh, that's one that we've looked at here at Salt. We hear of Jesus choosing this phrase to describe himself. Um, let me give you some examples. In chapter 2, verse 10, it's the healing of the paralyzed man and his, his being forgiven his sins by Jesus. And Jesus says this, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This, this Son of Man figure, Jesus is taking that language and he's using it of himself. And the Son of Man is able to do things that only God can do, forgive sins. We see in the rest of the chapter that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Here is this man who's able to rule over the laws that God has made. Um, later on in Mark's Gospel, you see a picture of, of the Son of Man coming in his rule and authority. In fact, the highlight of this is in chapter 14, and I'll read from verse 60. 
Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Now listen to this. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Let me read that again. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Friends, context. Context. If we're to understand Daniel 7, then we need Mark's Gospel. If we're to understand Daniel, then we need Jesus. If we're to understand Jesus fully, then we need Daniel. The Bible actually informs and shapes our understanding. It works together in the context. You move backwards and you move forwards so that you might understand that Jesus is that one in Daniel 7 that's going to be given authority to rule over everything and he's going to come on the clouds to the ancient of days and he will gather people to be with him. What a great picture that is. But there's something else that we need to see. Because in Mark's Gospel, Jesus uses this language, Son of Man, in ways that would have been absolutely radical for the people listening. Because having declared uh, Jesus to be the Messiah in Mark chapter 8, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus then goes on to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He didn't get it. Because the picture here of the Son of Man coming into the presence to the Ancient of Days and being given authority to rule over everything for all time is a picture that takes place after the Son of Man gives his life as a ransom for many. It's the cross that leads to resurrection, that leads to Jesus' exaltation at the right hand of God. Without the cross, there is no resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no exaltation. You see, the way that the Son of Man comes into his power to rule over all is by giving his life as a sacrifice for all. It's a great chapter, this one, friends. How does it encourage us? How is it helping us to endure, to persevere? Well, I take it it reminds us that God is in control. As we look around about and we see the impact of the pandemic, as we see people's lives um, being damaged through sickness, through suffering, as we see the, the social unraveling of societies, as we see evil being done um, in Afghanistan and other parts of this world, as we see fake news and falsehood, as we see corruption and crime, as we see everything that's chaotic and evil and beastly, we might be tempted to think, what on earth is God doing? But God's word reminds us it's apocalypse, it's revelation. He's giving us the behind the scenes view on what's really happening. And God's got this. He's working for his good purposes. And what we see on the surface is not all there is. For Daniel, it wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius. 
No, for Daniel, it was the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. He needed that. We need that. We need to remember that God's doing something great and eternal. And he's doing it in Jesus. And we are to grab hold of this message. When our lives and the lives of those around about us seem chaotic and out of control, when we can't understand things, when we are suffering and hurting, when everything is too much, remember this. God has got this and he's got you. He cares about you. His holy ones here are are going to suffer at the hand of this horn. Yes, there will be persecution. Yes, there will be suffering, but it will be short-lived. And after we have endured for a short time in this life, we look forward to an eternity with God. So friends, please keep your hope in Christ. Keep your faith in Christ. Keep looking to him only and always to the Son of Man. Thank you, God, that you've given us your Son, that he gave up his life for us. Thank you that you've raised him to life and that you've placed him in authority. And thank you that you preserve us and that you keep us and you pull our hearts back to you again and again. And may we persevere and enjoy living eternally with you and with your Son in the power of your Spirit forever and ever. Amen.